This episode of the Arbitration Station podcast is brought to you by MB Kemp LLP. MB Kemp is a nimble, adaptable, and current international law practice with strong east-west links based in London, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, and Hong Kong. For more information, visit www.kempllp.com or visit us on LinkedIn at Kemp LLP. Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station. Is that the main issue of ISDS today? So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either <laughs> pregnant or you're not. Did you say Gayard? Mm-hmm. Yeah, with a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. It's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to the Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kodik. I'm Joel Dahlquist. And I'm Sadia Petty. And we are your co-hosts all together for another episode of the Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance, and 33% general pondings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% London International Disputes Week. Here we are. We are Lidwick 2022, which is uh, not in person every day. (laughs) That's something that I found out when I arrived at Central Hall at nine in the morning, (laughs) waiting in traffic and taking a taxi, spending money because I was running late, getting there, dressed up. And then some woman, I was like, this seems very empty for the biggest event of the year uh, for London. And then this lovely woman said, oh, it's virtual today. Oh my God. I mean, this is, that's a human mistake. And to be fair, I don't think it's super clear on the website. The program doesn't like specify what's remote and what's in person. And I relate, I, you texted me and you were uncharacteristically upset, I think for understandable reasons, but I still <laughs> had a chuckle because I could so have been me. I'm just happy it was you. <laughs> but you travel from London to London. So it's not that bad. Right? No, it's not that bad. I think it's the suit, putting on the suit yeah, nonsense no, of it all since yeah. I work from home. So putting on no, a no, suit is course. an event. <laughs> but it's a funny story. Where in the world are you, Sadia? And where in the world will you be soon? Uh, so right now I am in um, in Cambridge, but I just returned from uh, Abidjan and Kigali. So I was in Africa uh, and I'm going to Paris in uh, about an hour. So, yeah, uh, this is a very much international week for me, <laughs> international <laughs> arbitration week for me. Yeah, but not in London. <laughs> yeah. What about you? Where are you guys? I am still in London. Um, we were talking off mic about how the world really just the world of arbitration at least just came back just like that. Someone flipped a switch, and I feel like you're personifying that, Sadia, with your uh, <laughs> yeah. pre-pandemic travel schedule. I don't have the same. I am still. I'm in my office in London. I'm going to go to the disputes week, a few things this week, but otherwise things are relatively normal for me. As it is for Brian, I think you're also in London, huh? Yes, on on both sides of the city, actually. Today, <laughs> uh, yes, no, I'm here, and I will be here. The you know the, it really lives up to its name because every panel today is um, based out of a different uh, region of the world. So it's East Asia, East Asia India, the UAE, mm-hmm. um, the CEE. All of this is in Latin America and that's all today just talking about arbitration in those in those regions which actually leads us to Saudi your topic today talking about these regions in toto but 
First, we will start with an interview with um, Mohammed Tavana, Dr. Mohammed Tavana, excuse me, who is a legal advisor and independent arbitrator um, specializing in dispute resolution and international commercial arbitration. He is also a member of the board of the Tehran Regional Arbitration Center and a member of the Iran Central Bar Association. Um, but we will talk to him specifically about something that piqued my interest recently, which is Sharia law. Um, he has re- published oh, quite recently in 2021, um, Sharia law is applicable law on Islamic finance disputes. And it was the thesis, the subject of his PhD thesis. So um, it is something that is something that we don't know very much about, or we all only know about interest. Um, but hopefully we dig in it a bit deeper. And in the interest of full disclosure, in addition to all his academic accolades, I don't know if you guys know, he's a former tenant of mine. <laughs> Actually, oh, what? what like, like renting your apartment? Speaking? Yes, yeah. Oh, yeah. okay. <laughs> when I was at Georgetown, he was in Stockholm, uh, so he's he was on a sublease. He lived stayed in my apartment, I think, for six months or so. That's how I know him wow. originally. Model tenant, in addition to successful academic and legal advisor. <laughs> and That's was your lease subject to Sharia law? No, we didn't <laughs> uh, negotiate that individually. Uh, but but yeah, good question. <laughs> well, that would have been a shame. Um, but then, Sadia, to, on to you for a, another substantive segment. Yes. So um, in part related to uh, my, my past travels, but also because of everything that's going on on the continent, I thought it would be a good uh, segment to speak about the Africanization of investment arbitration. And I know you guys are wondering what that means and why I want to speak about it. And I can hear your questions already, but looking forward to speaking about that. Fantastic. I'll try to keep keep quiet with my reservations. I, I trust you <laughs> to talk about this not as a colonizing man in the 1940s. <laughs> I, I, there's many segments we've done in this podcast where Joel has convinced me that a topic is a topic, so I wouldn't worry about this criticism. I'm not worried. <laughs> <laughs> and then what do we have for happy fun time? What do we have? What did we settle on ultimately? Yeah, so I think happy fun time. Maybe we're going to be talking about the death of the billable hour with a question yes. mark mm-hmm. um, of law firms. So it'd be good to, I mean, of course, speak to our experiences personally, but more generally to engage in that debate to see what's happening on that front. Yes, we talked about billable hours in a previous episode, but just as how they work. And now we're going to talk about the death of them. And maybe, maybe <laughs> wing it a little bit and also discuss it in the context of arbitrators and tribunal secretaries and how they are paid. Because it's also, you know, an hourly rate versus other structures. Oh, thank you for saying that, actually, because that is an exact point that I will be talking about on a panel at the IDRC on Wednesday. Oh, at- no. Did I set oh, you up to gosh, do some log right? rolling? I didn't mean to. <laughs> We're talking about uh, starting your career as an arbitrator and also um, on the counterpoint of that. So it's the next generation of arbitrators, what art- rising arbitrators need to know and the council that are appointing them. Um, and one of those is how to reconcile your ambitions as an arbitrator with your duties as an associate slash employee of a law firm. So ah, great. I look forward to a happy fun time now all of a sudden. That sounds really interesting. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm sitting here, well, virtually sitting here with Mohammed Tavana. Hello, Mohammed. How are you? Hi, Brian. 
Are you doing well? Yes, I'm fine. Thank <laughs> you. And how are you? Good. So to introduce you to the listeners, um, Mohammed is a soul practitioner um, who has a expertise, we'll call it, but an emphasis, we'll generally call it, uh, in Sharia law, which is the topic that we'll be discussing today. It is something that come up came up in a recent arbitration of mine, and I found it to be fascinating just to read the text. Um, so I wanted to dig a little bit deeper on what it is, uh, knowing that many people in arbitration um, their only exposure to Sharia law is that there is no interest in Sharia law. Um, so hopefully we can give them a bit more information. And you are also affiliated, I've read, with TRAC, which is the Tehran Regional Arbitration Center. How long have you been affiliated with them? Almost four years. Okay, so I was reading that because I haven't heard a lot about TRAC, but it's it was established in 1997 and it is an arbitral institution um, is it affiliated with any organization or is it, you know, part of a... Yes, it is. It's affiliated with ALCO, Asian African Legal Consultative Organization, which is based in uh, Delhi. Okay. And uh, also it supervised the activities of Cairo and also the center in Kuala Lumpur and in Lagos and in Nairobi as well. Interesting. So it's pretty much international. That's great. Well, I'm sure, you know, there's, I, I'm not sure how many cases that it's gotten so far, but it seems like a, a great um, initiative in, in the Middle East. Yes, indeed it is. And as I said, it's very international in Iran. There are two major arbitral institutions in Tehran, and TRAC is the one which does more the international cases and Fairly, it has a high volume of case, so it's going in the right way. That makes sense. Good. We'll have to do a, a separate segment on, on the actual center. But today we have you uh, to talk to us about Sharia law. And like any good um, academic introduction, we just need to know what is Sharia law? Um, is it a legal system? What, what is, how can we define Sharia law as the basis for our discussion? Well, it's a very tricky question. Basically, Sharia is considered to a varying degree as a common legal background in different Muslim countries. It also has a great influence in the legal thinking of modern Muslim parties. Uh, but what we often hear is Sharia law. However, it should be noted that there is an institutional difference between Sharia and rules of Sharia and law and the rules of law. Okay. Sharia are the rules which are according to Islamic belief emanate from God and the purpose of them is executing his will and providing his satisfaction while the law in Western philosophy especially after enlightenment is a man-made institution issued and enforced by the state institutions so I think it's a tricky how to define Sharia as it's much different than law, and now it has like a combination. It, there exists a combination between Sharia and law, especially in the modern Muslim countries. Yes. So you said that the the first place to start, or maybe one place to start when defining Sharia, is the Word of God, and is that coming from uh, the Quran, or is that coming from where does that come from? Yeah. I think it goes to the 
question that what are the sources of Sharia? As I said, it's quite hard to define what is Sharia and it's like a very wide concept. Uh, the sources of the Sharia, the primary sources are Quran and Sunnah, and there exist secondary sources which are different among the different schools. And also there are supplementary sources that each school has its for its own. In the hierarchy, Quran is on the top mm-hmm. as the as in the Muslims' belief, it's the words of God and Sunnah uh, comes to play when Quran is silent on the point. Okay. Or when it's just general guideline mentioned in the Quran and it needs further elaboration. But these two sources together are the primary sources of Sharia. And you mentioned and school. the point that I mentioned. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, exactly. The point that I mentioned is about the schools. Mm-hmm. Sharia scholars are basically divided into two main rights of Sunni and Shiite and have developed different schools within each sect in the course of history. Oh, the four major Sunni schools which have survived up to present day because there were so many which are not there anymore. But the ones which has survived up to present day are Hanafi, Maliki, Shafi'i, and Hanbali, while Jafari is the predominant school within the Shia sect. And in fact, the Sharia rules are the rules which are found in the collections of the scholars. These these rules are developed and applied differently as the scholars from different schools or even those coming from the same school could have different opinions on the same subject. Therefore, there exists a great degree of uncertainty, which makes it very hard to provide a firm answer when a legal question is at hand. Interesting. And so how would you, does it just depend on the council that is preparing the legal arguments and which school of thought, or is it depending on the jurisdiction in which you're presenting the arguments or how would you decide which school of thought to choose or you just choose the best one to suit your case? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, I would say you can look at this question from different perspective. From one perspective is the seat of arbitration. And when uh, we want to think about Lex Arbitri, for example, when seat of arbitration is in Saudi Arabia and in Saudi Arabia, Hanbali school is prevailing. Uh, basically in different Muslim countries, usually different schools exist and one is prevailing. Uh, but I could safely say that, for example, in Saudi Arabia, the majority of countries are Hanbali. And, for example, in a country like Iran, the majority of countries are Jafari or Shia 12ers. Okay. So then the role of the teachings of each of these schools in the name country are very important when the seat of arbitration is there, but to a different degree. Of course, the degree of uh, Influence in Saudi Arabia is much higher, even if Iran is also a country where Sharia is a quite important part of the legal system. Mm. And another issue is when you have one of these national laws as the applicable law, because Sharia is a source of law in these countries. Mm -hmm. And then when you have it as the applicable law, then also a question of Sharia might come directly or indirectly as I said, much stronger in Saudi Arabia, as there is no codified law in Saudi Arabia. Maybe further in our conversation, we will go to that mm-hmm. point and explain more. And in Iran, we have a codified law, but still 
Another point of relevance is when you want to enforce an award and potentially you uh, seek for the firms that probably if you are successful in the proceedings or when you have an award at hand, you want to enforce it. So if it's in Saudi Arabia, then you should make sure that it does not violate the principles of Sharia based on the understanding of the Hanbali school. And when you want to do it in Iran, probably you should also take it into mind that it should not violate the principles of Sharia. That makes sense. And I, I so it's, I, it's, it's technically mandatory, but it that would depend on the legal system and the country in which you exactly. Are. Okay, that makes sense. Very much depends. Can we talk about just because I was reading through um, it, this this I was reading through this case and I was reading some of these principles of Sharia law um, that had to deal with specifically with contracts and you know trade. Um, can you just can explain a bit about some of the examples of these rules and just how the, these interpretations kind of whittle down into legal arguments? For sure, for sure. Uh, maybe at first it's better to classify the rules of Sharia, which are uh, covering this common grounds which the rules of law also regulate. Uh, these could be classified in t- three groups, rules relevant to family and succession, which are also referred to as personal status, rules regarding criminal offenses and punishments, and finally, the rules governing contract and commerce. Oh, I see. And uh, I have to say that the category, the uh, latter category, composed of like the least of the number of rules, uh, maybe the most important one is where Quran says, oh, you who have believed fulfill all contracts. And in continuation of that, Sunnah says Muslims must respect their promises except those which forbid what is authorized or those which authorize what is forbidden. Mm-hmm. And this is similar to the principle of uh, Pacta Sun Servanda under the Roman law. Sanctity of contract is basic principle under Sharia which applies which Muslims to respect their contractual undertakings. However, there are certain limitations as the modern principle of modern freedom of contracts is limited with the notion of public policy. The theory of Sharia is well restricted by certain limitations, which are mentioned in the sources of Sharia. These limitations concern both subject of contract and its stipulations. For example, selling alcoholic beverages or renting Mm -hmm. the place for the purpose of gambling could be mentioned as examples of um, prohibited subject matter. And the main voidable stipulations are those that include riba and karar. Prohibition of riba, which is often regarded as prohibition of interest, and as you pointed out, is very well known mm-hmm. as the rule of Sharia. Uh, but I should say that riba and interest in its modern sense are not the same. Okay. Yeah. There is, a, uh, there is no single de- definition for riba, but in simple words, riba is an legitimate profit by way of excess in the amount, which has no wealth corresponding to it and causes inequality between the values. This is mm. what you can find in the Sharia uh, sources. And according to Sharia notion of uh, prohibition of terror, there should 
not be a great deal of ambiguity at the time of conclusion of the contract that is the subject of the contract should exist and its characteristics should be clear enough to the parties. The violation of each of these provisions would otherwise lead to error. And similar to the rationale behind the prohibition of rebut, the main reason for the ban of Qara is the prevention of the unjust yeah. and unjust enrichment. Could what about something like um, you know indirect losses or future earnings or loss of opportunity? This seems like something that would fit into being excluded under these principles. Uh, you could see it in that perspective. They don't but really. If- ha- I guess they have value, but they have not a particular you know it's it's hard to really assign a value to them yeah Uh, it was a very good example and maybe if i want to have a more conventional example of that is insurance when the first time the insurance was introduced to the muslim countries uh sharia scholars started to argue that you have so many uncertain points and it's like a battery contract and it's it's not acceptable under sharia but later on, they could justify that it is. And more or less, it was the same when the conventional banking was introduced to the Muslim countries. And still, mm-hmm. some think, this one is about the prohibition of interest. Still, somebody think that the conventional banking and modern banking system is in violation of the prohibition of riba because oh, of wow. that you have Islamic <laughs> banks and you have Islamic finance, which is now a huge industry for different reasons. I see. So w- when we go into like what you said with these, um, these principles and, and about basically how to form a contract um, and that you should basically honor your obligations and the Pacto Sun Servanda, um, how does that become, how does that interact with, or how does, does that become legislation or does that become interpreted by the courts how do we get into okay i have a contract for a sale of goods and therefore this sharia principle can be applied like where where's the connection made is it through legislation or is it through the court i would say both okay Uh, you know throughout the 20th century different views were expressed across the muslim world concerning the relationship between sharia and national law based on those views muslim countries are nowadays ranged from saudi arabia's preservation to classical Sharia to Turkey's strict secularism. Mm -hmm. And except these two uh, countries, which are at the two ends of the spectrum, the other countries are the legal systems, which are either mixture of civil law and Sharia or mixture of common law and Sharia. And in those countries, at least in 22 countries, Sharia is a source of legislation or their source of legislation from the constitutional point of view. I could give you four examples, for example, from the most extreme, which is Article 1 of the 1992 Saudi Basic Law. Basically, before that, the country didn't have a constitution. And Mm. uh, since then, it has this law, which is a quasi-constitutional charter, which declares the sources of Sharia, that is Quran and Sunnah, are the constitution of the country. So it's very strong. I see. And then you have Article 4 of the 1979 Iranian Constitution, which says all civil, penal, financial, economic, administrative, cultural, military, political, 
and other laws and regulations must be based on Islamic criteria. And then if you come to countries which has less adherence to Sharia, but still has this provision in their constitution, I can refer to Article 7 of the 1971 Emirati Constitution, which says the Islamic Sharia shall be the main source of legislation in the Union. And Article 2 of 2014 Egyptian Constitution provides that the principles of Islamic Sharia are the principal source of legislation. This is from the legislative point of view. But if I want to talk about the courts, Mm-hmm. which also has relevance, especially when you want to enforce an arbitral award in those countries. In theory, there is no law other than Sharia in Saudi Arabia. This is stipulated in Article 46 and 48 of the 1992 Basic Law, which I, ju- I just referred to, as well as Article 1 of 2013 Royal Decree, Royal Decree governing, Sharia, governing Sharia Court Regulations. In practice, Sharia judges decide on cases solely based on Sharia rules as taught by Hanbali School. And where Sharia is silent on a matter, the statutory provisions, which are referred to as the regulations, are place of reliance, provided that those regulations and provisions are not in contradiction with the Sharia rules. Currently, there are attempts for codification in Saudi Arabia. However, it is still the only Muslim country where a comprehensive codified law is not in place. And then mm-hmm. the other example, which I also referred to earlier, is Iran, according to Article 167 of the 1979 Iranian Constitution, the judge can rely on the principles of Sharia in his judgment in the absence of statutory provision. As you could observe, there's a huge difference with Saudi Arabia, that when law is silent in Iran, the, the source for legislation is Sharia. Mm-hmm. But the law should be silent that the judge, when the judge is allowed to rely on the principles of Sharia. Or another example is Article 3 of 2000 Iranian Civil Procedure Code, which indicates the statutory provisions as the first and the highest in the hierarchy, the principles of Sharia and the principles of law, insofar as they are not in contradiction with Sharia as the sources for the ruling of judge. So this sounds like that this links us to international arbitration, doesn't it? Where if you exactly. have if you have the Lex Arbitrary as um, a country like Saudi Arabia, the law of Saudi Arabia, or the law, yeah. um, and then you have do parties have to expressly provide? Do you think in the international arb- in the arbitration agreement that similar to um, you know in the inclusion of international um uh, like you know including principles of international law you know they there's all this uh, all these like treaties that include that proviso in the arbitration agreement do you think it's necessary for parties to include including principles of sharia law or if you refer or the lex arbitrary of, a, of an arbitration is you know the law of iran that that is implied yeah i think maybe if you want to consider the effects of Sharia on the law, maybe it's better to consider it differently when it's Lex Arbitrary and we are considering the arbitration law as far as I understand from Lex Arbitrary and the effects of that on the arbitration law of the named country. For yeah. example, you have regulations for arbitration in Saudi Arabia or you have 19 
97 Arbitration Act in Iran, which is basically a model law. So uh, you don't have a huge concern, but in the 2012 regula Saudi regulation, still you can see some influence of the Sharia institution. For example, there exists an institution under Sharia teachings, which is called Tahkim. It could be compared to modern notion of arbitration as it is parallel with the office of judge functions, parallel with the office of judge, and the parties choose the adjudicator. But for example, the huge difference with the modern notion is that the decision of the Tahkim Qadi or what could be called with uh, a minor uh, as the arbitrator is not that binding and is fully subject to review by the judge. Oh, okay. So it's kind of different. And this concept and institution has affected the legislation of the legs arbitrary in Saudi Arabia and the regulations that we have had so far in the previous one more and in 2012 less. But as I said, as far as legs arbitrary is concerned, except Saudi Arabia, you shouldn't have really a major concern because in many Muslim countries that I have studies, and in particular, I refer to Iran, the legs arbitrary is very much affected by modern law. Mm -hmm. But when the law of that country is the applicable law chosen yes, by the, the party, then, yes. then it's a totally different issue. Sharia plays an important role. And a more extreme example is when Sharia per se is chosen by the parties as the applicable law, mm -hmm. which quite often happens in Islamic finance contracts. And then the whole story is so complicated. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's for another segment altogether. But you, you touched about enforcement. Well, we discussed enforcement, but you mentioned previously in your presentation about how you know, there could be challenges to the enforcement of an arbitral award if, it is not, if the award itself hasn't complied with Sharia law principles. What, how do you see, what are these grounds? Is it just public policy that you see as grounds for refusing enforcement? Or what, what do you think, the, how, how does Sharia law affect enforcement? Yeah, very, very interesting and important and relevant question about the intersection between Sharia and arbitration. I would say that's the most important one. Right. even more important than the applicable law because it's more relevant and applicable in practice. I would say that it's how you preserve and how you define public policy as a scholar. And then, of course, what is more important is that how the judge sees that as they could see differently. Mm -hmm. For example, in Saudi Arabia, basically the judges are strictly following the teachings of Sharia. And then there is a violation of Sharia in their eyes is violation of public policy. Mm -hmm. And then it's a definitely ground for refusing enforcement of an arbitral award. I have read the report that it has not, for example, when you have interest, it was not a partial uh, enforcement. It was fully uh, refused to enforce. So it's a bit tricky. Mm. But when you come to countries like Iran, I had, when I was doing my PhD, I had interviews with different judges. And honestly, they had different interpretations. Because as I said, at the end of the day, the one who decides on this question is the judge who is asked for the enforcement. And right. I would say they see it differently. Someone sees violation of Sharia as violation of public policy and some doesn't. Mm -hmm. Some 
considers more uh, modern theories in international arbitration as international as the way that they could interpret international public policy or domestic public policy. And then I saw an award uh, which had interest at the rate of 9%, which was enforced in Iran because the judge ruled that based on the international, based on the domestic public policy of Iran, uh, awarding interest is in violation of Sharia, but the international public policy Ah. Uh, description is different than the national one or the domestic one. And then the award was fully enforced. But also I have saw, uh, I have seen the cases when uh, you have interest in the award, it was just partial enforcement and the part which was relevant to interest was not enforced by any Iranian court. So I think it's again, a matter of gray That's zone. Predictable, right. Yeah, and you because know, I was thinking while you were speaking, and I I was thinking, well, I'm surprised that there isn't something in the domestic legislation or in Sharia law itself that says that the only body that can adjudicate is the domestic courts, because as you just said, that they're the ultimate um, decision maker on the application of Sharia law and the enforcement of Sharia law. So, um, or these principles at least, and I think that. Um, that could be spoken against even having international arbitration at all. Because if you look at, you know, if we extrapolate that to something like ACMEA saying that EU courts are the only ones competent to decide on EU law or Russian national law saying that they're the only ones that can decide on sanctions, um, you you could see how that could be kind of used as an analogy that could prevent arbitration in these Sharia law countries. But I guess that we don't see that, that they do allow international arbitration to proceed so long as the award is compliant. Exactly, exactly. And I would say that I have observed the trend has changed and shifted. Uh, Previously, in so many Muslim countries, not those that we have talked, Mm -hmm. they were not that much arbitration friendly. And now they have become more, I would say, based on my studies, which was concentrated on certain Certain countries, I would say it has happened definitely in Iran and it has happened definitely in Saudi Arabia. It has happened mm. definitely in UAE and other countries in the Gulf. So uh, I would say, yes, previously it was not much international arbitration friendly. And no, they have accepted it more as a legitimate uh, way of adjudicating. adjudicating the dispute and honoring this. And it's also definitely relevant to the fact that by the time it's passing, more and more countries are uh, ratifying New York Convention. As I guess the last news that I have read was last year or two years ago, Iraq was the last country in the Middle East uh, that signed the convention. And wherever you have New York Convention, you can have hopes that <laughs> exactly arbitration works that's very true well i think that is a great slogan to end on for this interview i thank you thank for you very much indulging us and enlightening us on something that i think remains hidden to most western uh arbitration practitioners and i as you say the trend is opening up in these countries and therefore it is incumbent on us to learn a bit more so thank you for for educating us it was my pleasure and thank you for having me your very popular program of us. <laughs> it, was, it was a great honor for me. Thank you. Thank you. 
Africa. You are both familiar with the continents. You both are familiar that there are uh, 54 states in Africa um, and that it's at the forefront of a lot of things these days. Um, number one, I think just to explain uh, the thought process and why I think it's important to speak about them now um, is um, there are currently discussions going on on the investment protocol of the African AFCFTA, which is the African Continental Trade Agreement, um, which well launched. <laughs> Thank you, because it's <laughs> not easy to say it either in French or in, or in English. Um, and uh, in can we English, hear the French too, Sade? Oh no, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'll I'll say that at, at another time. Uh, okay, I should sure. probably be able to say the French version better than the English one, but this, this for this specific one, I, the 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 English one is easier. Yeah, well, uh, well, before I'm sorry to just completely undermine what is yeah. a good substantive segment. How often do you speak French as opposed to English when you are doing what you just did and you go to different countries in Africa? I, I guess it depends on where in Africa you are, but exactly. do you feel comfortable relying on French in general? No, no. Yeah, exactly. I have to switch between both. Like, for example, when I was in Kigali a few days ago, it was all in English. And two days later, I was in Abidjan. It was all in French. So I had to work with the French version of the draft. And then with them, it was the English version. So. Oh, my goodness. Yes. So I better be competent in both languages. Uh, so, yes. Um, so this is like I'm this is the beginning of what I'm going to be speaking about in the end. But um, it, this this is a very important time for Africa because it's part of um, um, a project, of course, that was launched by uh, the African Union, the flagship project of Agenda 2063, which is the plan by the African Union to transform Africa into a politically and economically independent continent and uh, to reposition the continent as a force in global trade. And for that, they want to boost intra-Africa trade. Okay. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like uh, what is happening in the European Union, uh, but, you know, at the African scale, which is, of course, much wider, much bigger. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the trade agreements have been negotiated and signed, actually, um, but there was still the investment protocol that was remaining. And the investment protocol is the chapter that interests us as investment arbitration lawyer, as international arbitration lawyers more generally, because there's discussion on obviously what protections there are going to be for foreign investors, like a bilateral investment treaty between two states, and what um, uh, will be the dispute settlement mechanism. But before I go into this, I just wanted to speak about, more generally speaking, about the importance of um, Africa as a player um, in international arbitration and investment arbitration in general. Um, of course, they, the, they are a core recipient of foreign direct investment. Um, even if, if you take only the Chinese and as, as an example, everywhere that I've been recently, I see Chinese construction projects everywhere, whether it was a you know, in North Africa or South Africa or um, East Africa. So that is pretty, I know I don't want to make any generalization, but this is a reality of the continent. The second thing is you see there's been an exponential uh, increase of cases involving African states. Now, ICSID, ICSID has a specific data for 
they they have um, um, sorry they have uh, Middle East and Northern Africa, so they have a percentage for those cases, right. and so the MENA region, and then they have uh, East Africa. So you don't have the cumulative or at least real figures for the continent as a whole, and there may be specific reasons for it, and you know I'm sure. There are, but the truth is there are no specific figures. I have done um, a look for just the cases um, that were registered in the past. Uh, so 2019, 2021, 22. So in the past, I would say almost four years. Um, and there have been more than 30 cases in ICSID alone that were filed against an African state. Uh, the majority of them, interestingly, two things appear. The majority of them concern the energy sector um, and the extractive industries, the mining sector. The second thing that's really interesting is a lot of them are on the basis of not treaties, but contracts. So mm-hmm. that's another thing that's really interesting to, to note. Um, so that's just a, to get a global fit picture of what's going on on the continent in terms of disputes, in terms of foreign direct investment. Um, I'm not going to speak about, even though it's a very important topic, but it could be a topic, a standalone topic on the representatives of African arbitrators in arbitration and the lack of diversity on that front, because that's a whole other topic. Not that it's not important, but that's not where I want to uh, go today. Um, So when you see this level of Disputes, And of course, there is some diversity in the types of disputes we're talking about, but a lot of them, uh, especially in the energy sector, and if you look, just if you want to take an example of the recent ones um, that were taken to arbitration were uh, Congo with respect to um, the mining industry, there's a lot of discussion on you know, states um, nationalizing their energy sector, um, or refusing licenses or exploration licenses on the basis that, you know, they want to have more control of their uh, natural resources. And then obviously that leads to arbitration and. Can I ask you something that's related to this, but I Mm -hmm. understand if you, if you are not at a, at a, in a position to, to answer it, but I I thought it was interesting that many exit cases against African states are contract based as opposed to treaty based. Do you know Mm -hmm. just generally if, that reflects a recent contract drafting practice as well? In other words, are these relatively recent contracts? Is it common for sort of modern contracts to refer to ICSID in in contractual clauses? Or do you think that it is sort of a a older long-term contracts that for 15, 20 years time ago attempted to introduce ICSID clauses? I'm just curious if if it's it's a a common feature now that people refer to ICSID in in long-term contracts. Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. I I think it's still an ongoing practice, to be honest. Uh, I mean, on that front, um, there's there's traditionally not been a lot of investment, uh, bilateral investment treaties that were signed by African states. In fact, if they were BITs, then a lot of them have not been ratified. So you have like BITs from the 60s, from the 60s, not even 90s. I'm talking about 60s, 80s, and early 90s that are still there that exist, but have never been ratified. That's one thing. The second thing is also you have a lot of investment codes. This is also a peculiar thing to Africa, right, right, right. where you have consent to arbitration that goes through the investment code. 
So there was no need to go through a BIT in itself. And so it was the liaison between the contract, like concession contracts, for example, um, or like, you know, uh, um, in, in, in the in this, uh, mining sector industry, you had contracts, of course, as well, or construction project contracts that would consent to exit. I have seen contracts in the past, I would say, yeah, 10, 15 years that, that you know, from the past. So I have not seen like recent contracts, but I'm they're still from what I understand from my colleagues in the projects department, it's still a very common feature to include uh, an arbitration clause. Now, whether there's reference to exit specifically, I wouldn't be able to tell you if it's still a common uh, thing happening, but I, it depends which, of course, which country we're talking about. Some countries, as you know, in South Africa and Nigeria are denouncing um, the dispute resolution, the ISDS mechanism as we know it. And so they have been very vocal uh, before the ancestral working group three in, in uh, being opposed to that. But there are a lot of states that are still okay with it, you know. Um, and even if they haven't like voiced their uh, active support for it, they're not moving away from that system um, directly. So um, I don't know if that answers your question, but. Um, yeah, yes, it did. And it raised a bunch of other questions, but I, I don't <laughs> want to take it too, too far off track. I think this is very interesting. I mean, there's so much to say about this. I'm going to try to to limit the, the one point I wanted to make was that increase of, of course, disputes um, and the weight that they are playing, uh, generally speaking, in uh, also in rulemaking. So there's been a lot of discussion on how Africa was a rule taker and has become a rule maker. And I would even say that they've become a trendsetter in certain aspects. Um, we had a very interesting interview, you and me, of course, with uh, one of the drafters of the Dutch model BIT. If you look at what's going on in the continent, you see that there's been so much advancement of discourse on, the, on, on equalizing the rights for states and investors um, in, with respect to the protection of, of uh, foreign investment. What do I mean by that is, typically speaking, as we all know, um, a traditional bilateral investment treaty is more or less a unilateral protection of foreign investors, okay? Mm -hmm. There are no rights per se for states, uh, except very limited rights, for example, to regulate in security contacts or national interest protection contexts, but they're very vaguely drafted. Um, there has been a movement of reform on that front. Um, and not only in Africa, of course, but in Africa, you could see texts that expressly refer to that right to regulate in the context of um, pandemic, in the context of the protection of environment. Um, and you can see that in a series of texts. So before the EFCFTA that I have mentioned, there has been the Pan-African Investment Code that was also signed. Um, and it has been, it's a, it's a model for African states. So it's not, I understand, like um, a binding document per se, but it's a very good model for African states to refer to. There's also the South African Development Community, SADC, SADC, that we say model treaty, uh, that is a um, very interesting model on that front, where they explain how to limit on the one hand the rights of investors and on the other hand to increase the right of states. And that is the whole discussion also about whether or not counterclaims can be involved, you know, possible. And so I'm not even going to go towards that. And then um, 
uh, that there is a BIT that a lot of people refer to, which was signed in 2014, which is the Morocco-Nigeria BIT, which has not yet been ratified. Um, he's been ratified by one party, not the other. Um, but it's still a very important model, again, in this re-equalization of rebalancing of rights and obligations between the two. Now, what does it mean with respect to the dispute resolution mechanism? Now, um, the SADC model treaty actually is not even referring to ISDS anymore. Mm. Um, the Pan-African Investment Code has like a very curious kind of provision that refers to, okay, ISDS is okay if, nas- if it's not contrary to what is um, ad- admissible under national law. So, for example, in South Africa, there's a, um, a national legislation that prohibits um, foreign investment arbitration, as we understand it, uh, you know, before an international arbitrator, uh, an international arbitration tribunal. Um, so that would not be possible. Um, and now, right now, there are the discussions between the EFC, FTA, uh, investment protocol um, uh, parties, and they're discussing a model Uh, which has still not been adopted, but it's ISDS is very much on the table. So you're still going to have a lot of objections and opposition from South Africa, Nigeria, maybe others as well. Um, But there's a lot of states that are willing to go ahead with the model because the, the, the model as we know it, why? Because they don't want to offer a treaty for intra Africa protection. That would be, less attractive than what they have provided for in the past for uh, outside investment, you know, outside of Africa. You know, it doesn't really make sense when you frame it that way. It's like, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you encourage and promote and facilitate investment for African investors as well? It's a model that um, that could work. So a lot of discussion on, on this, obviously, it also questions the state of intra, not EU, but African VITs uh, for almost the same reasons as there is an issue of intra-EU VITs is how is that going to work? If you create a level of protection that's regional, then why would you need and how would you you, you work out um, intra-Africa VITs? So the draft, as is in circulation today, provides that there will be, there will not, um, they, they will terminate automatically uh, once the AFCTA um, investment protocol is sent. That would be so nice if you could solve <laughs> treaty conflicts by actually providing in, well, in a treaty how to deal with it. Saying. It's so much and easier. <laughs> exactly. And of course, the practice of the EU there is very useful for Africa, because if they don't provide it expressly, then uh, absolutely at some point there's going to be like a inconsistency or, or chaos and what we know is happening in the, in the EU. So, so that's why it's just really interesting because there's a lot of changes happening um, on that front today. Um, and I think that in, you know, six months, a year from now, it'd be interesting to have another talk on this because things will have changed significantly significantly on that front um and um whether as a rulemaker or on the level of disputes or even the face of arbitration as we know it today you've had a an africa-faced practice i guess you could say for for quite some time do you think 
comparing to five or seven years ago that the Oncitral Working Group has somehow contributed to these discussions you are now describing that are sort of pan-African in scope. I know a lot of people, they may even have come up in, in Taylor St. John's and Anthea Roberts's uh, blog post from Oncitral, you know, talking about the Oncitral process as such, as a capacity building thing, because there are so many states involved and it's been going yeah. on for such a long time and, you know, twice a year, three times a year, all the states of the UN basically show up and talk about ISDS and that that has spillover effects and that you're building capacity within states that didn't participate before as much. Do you think that may have something to do? I realize it's not a X leads to Y situation, but that the... I, I, I don't know if it's directly related to those changes, but it has weight for sure. Like, for example, I can I can tell you so much that in some of the states that we are advising right now uh, with respect to their reform of treaty, they do refer expressly, like, for example, in their terms of reference, even when they were instructing us to the works of um, the, um, you know, Unsettled Working Group 3. Why am I saying it's not direct is because, of course, as you know, um, the, the work at Working Group 3 is focused on procedure and procedural reform and what Af the African continent as a whole, even again, I like to caveat that because it's not, uh, it's, it's not easy to generalize, but the reform that is going on on the continent, at least on the, on the EFCTA protocol of investments, concerns substantive protections and everything that I mentioned to you, whether it's the Pan-African Investment Code or the SEDAC model, Morocco, Nigeria, BIT, the important aspect is mostly on the substantive provisions, which has not been raised by, um, at least this hasn't been discussed yet um, from the works of the Unstral Working Group. Probably never never will, but in that, that in a sense might also be an indirect contribution yeah. because that's been yeah. the state of play from the start like we won't deal with right. substance here and we've both been in the working group and that's a constant yeah. refrain that keeps coming back like now we're verging into the merits which we are not authorized to discuss here and that means it has to be discussed somewhere else in some other yeah. forum or fora uh, so it's really interesting that states are sort of taking that up and doing yeah. it on their own and you see that there are some states that are more vocal than others. To be honest, they have been pretty late at kind of voicing uh, their position in the working group three model as well. I think they're very much waiting also. Right. And I think that's that's an interesting part of the time. This yeah. is not an uncentral discussion, but it tends to turn into those. There are many states have already sort of declared yeah. where they are. Many African states have not. So you can tell mm -hmm. that there's some jockeying trying to get yeah. buy-in from groups of African states from various yeah. more like established or states or regional economic integration organizations uh, like the EU mm -hmm. that has a yeah. position and wants support for their position. Yeah, but then they have their own regional integration right now. It's just that they're having discussions as we speak. So the timing didn't really coincide. So they themselves are trying to figure out what they want for the continent and they just want to make sure everything is makes sense. You know, because that's the problem is that you have national legislation with those investment codes, you have uh, bilateral investment treaties, you have those regional treaties now. Um, how is that all going to work out is a question that is very difficult for them right now. But as an order of priority, do you think that they've established an order of priority that let's let's figure out intra-Africa first and then, or let's figure out nationally first, then intra-Africa, then international? Or, I mean, it seems that the investment's already coming in, so they have a double-headed dragon to kind of attack at the same time. 
They have to do both um, intra-Africa and, and Africa and the rest of the world at the same time, because the problem is their BITs, as I said, there's a stock of BITs as a not ratified or very mm-hmm. old first generation. So they want to look into reforming that. And also there, um, like I like I said, there's, there's active investment going on in the sector. So they're constantly being... Um, requested if they don't have BITs to enter into new BITs with new economies or mm-hmm. new uh, meaning um, not new in economies. What I meant was with parties, which they don't have BITs with. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's on the one hand and on the other, they need to figure out what's they're going to do on the continent at the same time. We also have uh, the, the OIC treaty, the organization of the Islamic conference, which is like uh, predominantly Muslim countries, many yeah. of which are African. We should, I don't know if you guys, either of you is comfortable uh, being an expert on that particular treaty, but there are a lot of interesting things with that treaty, both on a policy level and substantively and procedurally yeah. that maybe we should do a special I segment. I think we should. On. I think there are, there are multiple people I can think of that would be much uh, better qualified. <laughs> or maybe you guys are, but... Um, no, not, not at all. It. I know there's um, been some interesting appointing yeah. authority. I wrote about it briefly in my dissertation because there, there's some issue like what if a state doesn't appoint oh, an arbitrator right. under OIC arbitrators? Yeah, yeah, yeah. PCA has stepped in and there's been challenges. There's a whole thing. But that's that's my only vantage point. I know the treaty is much more uh, complex and, and like all encompassing than that narrow procedural question. This is good yeah, when we're that, brainstorming live. Let's do that in a separate. <laughs> yeah, but that's actually exactly the point is like you see the continent has this, you know, even when you when you go there, as you can imagine, it's a huge continent. So if you go to North Africa, or you know east africa south africa they the landscape is different so mm-hmm. investment is different so type of disputes are different the people are different the language is different and yet it's true we always talk about the african continent and uh, and uh, and how things are are evolving on this but i i i wanted to mention something which i forgot which i wanted to start with and i think i want to mention it now at the end and i conclude this there was a book that was published i'm sure there must be plenty of others, but this one I just saw uh, that was uh, published in 2008 um, by, uh, edited by Professor Levitt, or Levitt, I don't know how to pronounce it, probably not Levitt because he's uh, American. (laughs) 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 Um, And it's called Africa Mapping New Boundaries in International Law. Um, And, you know, the the second page, it says Africans have forged and lived under intricate and advanced rule-based systems from time immemorial. And then he goes back into the whole history of how Africa, uh, African um, countries, not just, you know, Egypt, as you can imagine, is, of course, was at the forefront, but also others were actually rule makers in international law. And of course, it's not just it's not investment law, it's more general on mm-hmm. investment law. But I thought this was extremely um, interesting. Um, and uh, there's a reference at some point in an uh, uh, observation made in the 70s that, and I quote, contribution which the third world in general and Africa in particular is making to contemporary international law will in time increase both in quality and in quantity, especially within the framework of the UN. And I, I want to say like, voila, absolutely, it's true. Um, so yeah. Just I, uh, I attended a talk last week from Judge Yusuf and the ICJ and, and, oh, the top, right. and the topic of the, and he's from Somalia and the, t- the topic of the discussion was why international law matters. 
and mm. a lot of his references because he couldn't because they had everyone was there to talk about Ukraine and and mm-hmm. the issues and why and how that would work but they had a lot of pending cases so he really limited it to examples in Africa about why international law matters and how it's kind of become necessary for them to not only rely on that but to contribute to its development because of um, all the the local interests there so definitely of the now so Joel convinced from uh, for uh, like a substantive topic I had to convince yes. Joel to do <laughs> yes I was I'm um, this just for our dear listeners I was a bit skeptical of the the angle being Africa for precisely the reason that Sadia elegantly caveated and avoided by being a bit more <laughs> specific it's always a knee jerk especially as a white man I'm like little okay should we sit here and talk about Africa as it's one monolith the way we in a way we never would do about Asia or Europe but you're right there are Africa-wide relevant instruments the way there are Europe-wide like EU law that we're dealing with so sometimes it actually does mm. make sense and and you obviously know where I haven't even I think been to Africa so I think you were the right person to do this having just come back and had this issues top of mind great all right well let's uh, move on to happy fun time All right. So happy fun time topic, which is uh, not as optimistic, but maybe it is optimistic for some. It's the, the we are taking inspiration from an article in the Financial Times entitled Law Firm's Love Affair with the Billable Hour is Fading. Um, and as we know, a lot of big law firms and corporate clients face the billable hours that uh, come out and it's caused billable hours have not only caused increase in costs, in every participant and in every stage of the proceedings, but it's also created a huge burnout for the the legal profession and lawyers that are trying to reach their minimums uh, and trying to reach up to 1,700 to 2,500 hours a year, which averages out to about seven and a half hours a a day. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's in front of computer hours, actually doing substantive work and not just logging in and having coffee with your your colleagues and um, sitting in front of your computer. So what we have at at the current framework at law firms is that you have your billable hour that could go up to over a thousand pounds an hour uh, for a senior partner, but associates charging between 350 and 400 pounds an hour. And if these associates and partners are scrambling to meet their billables, then obviously you not only have the external pressures to corporate clients and um, other participants in the field, but you also have the internal pressures of meeting those billables. And there's always been, and I've noticed an interaction, especially with working with investment cases and you have working for governments and they have very, very tight budgets. And as the junior associate, you're trying to pump out as many billables per hour because this investment case is the only one in your docket, for example. But then the senior partner decides to cut half of them because they need to meet the budget. <laughs> Uh, with their client. And then you have the internal policies of the firm on whether that billable, although it doesn't create any revenue for the firm, does that count towards your billable hour Uh. count? Um, Or is the senior partner basically uh, cutting you off at the knees? And um, I think different firms, and and it's matter specific as well, but firms have different policies. And I think all of these kind of what I would call perverse incentives create some conflicts of interests, um, both internally and externally. Um, I think starting a new firm, and I guess we can start the topic on like 
this way is that at, as a new firm, we our cases are much smaller than something that I had at Winston or Mannheimer or Jeeb. And so the clients are not willing to face, you know, the 500,000 pound budget that you usually set for a commercial case or over a million for an investment case. And they just want to have a monthly retainer fee at a certain you mm. know, amount per month, or they want to have a capped fee or half fees, half contingency. So you have all of these new uh, pricing models that you offer to your clients. But what that does is it basically eliminates any need for a billable hour, because if you have a monthly retainer and you're able to, you send the client, you know, an es- not an estimate, but kind of an average of what you've worked for that month to justify your fees. But there isn't really a need internally to be recording your billables. So for most of the cases that we have, and it's basically just made it our firm not really rely on billables internally, um, and we don't have what very- do you do then? How do you quantify internally who's been busy, who's been working a lot versus, I mean, for you, I guess it's still startup and small firm, but there's got to be some sort of objective metric by which you can quantify the amount uh, of work. Well, that's an interesting question, Joel, because why do you need to find out who's busy? I, I'm not, I'm not in the, I feel like I'm a socialist when we're talking about this. I don't see it, but, but, but that's the way, uh, at least for larger firms, you know, yes. that's, you, you need to let Just some sort of objective information. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Cause it, it affects, you know, promotions and step-by-step yeah. accelerations and, and skill and, and compensation, of course. And, you know, the finances of the, the firm, you need more than just, you feel like you've been doing good. You're a good worker this year. It's easy for an organization if you have some sort of data underlying. And if you don't have recorded billable hours, I guess the most easily accessible, typically, uh, source of data goes out the window. Mm-hmm. But deliverables, how about, you know, how you're delivering um, on, I mean, most of the time what we need to do is we have deliverables that are detailed in our terms of references to our respective clients. It's, um, you know, whether it's just, you know, preparing requests for arbitration or, um, you know, preparing for hearings, prepping hearings, uh, whatever it is, however it is framed, how vague or precise it is, there are deliverables at the end of the day. And that's according to these milestones that you are, uh, I don't know if I could say usually, but at least in my experience, uh, that we are um, paid as well if you have a fixed fee arrangement, right? So what you see is more and more fixed fee arrangements with these guys, whether it's states or um, companies actually, it goes mm-hmm. both ways. People are not willing to pay in the billable hour, or if they pay billable hour, then you spend so much time doing admin back and forth, renegotiating the invoice. I mean, it's terrible. It Uh really is. I mean, the number of hours you spend preparing a bill and then, you know, striking out the hours you can't do, um, you can't have your billing department do it. You need a partner that makes the call and checks the narrative and all of this. So it's really there's a question as to how efficient this model is and remains today for our kind of work. Um, I'd be interested in knowing, um, you know, people's experience if, if they can feedback after this this uh, podcast to let us know how much percentage of the work is um, based on hourly rate and how much is mm-hmm. it fixed fee because there's a huge, um, I think, uh, lack of transparency. <laughs> on this every time i speak to someone they're like oh yeah we pitched for this too and i know that you know uh, in the case where we were asked to pitch we were asked to pitch a flat fee Mm -hmm. a fixed fee 
uh, it could be a capped fee. You know, we talked about difference, but uh, in any event, ne- this, ne- you're not paid on an hourly basis at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and hourly basis models work for our colleagues, I think, in transaction work or projects or whatever it is, M&A, it might work. But for us, it's, it's, it's not an easily easy selling point for our clients. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I still have, you know, billable um, matters, um, billable matters. I have billable <laughs> matters, but not working for free. No, what I mean is on an hourly rate basis. Mm-hmm. But our, our, I mean, you know, the more senior you get, you know how our rates get. You know what the lender market is right now. It's crazy. And the U.S. market, worse. So in essence, you're asking for a client to pay for like a trainee in London. That means not even a qualified lawyer yet, you know, for like almost 300 or I don't know how much it is for pounds now, uh, pounds per hour. But it's a ridiculous amount mm-hmm. per hour. Um, it's not, and I'm not even talking about our rates because we're like senior people now. Um, and that means you're reviewing an email and you're sending it. And that's already like, what, almost a thousand pounds? Like, what the hell? <laughs> you know? Um, so that, that's the reality is, um, and I think the difference that I've seen is that it's not just, you know, people who don't, people, like entities that are, um, that don't have the budget for it or don't have the money for it. Even like big oil and gas companies now are like, nope, we're not no, going to. Exactly. <laughs> right? Well, I mean, we've we've been, been referred to cases for people that have hired big firms and they've been so put off by the bills that they've received because they have a, yeah. a conference call with 10 lawyers on it, uh, just like a kickoff meeting. And that's cost them 50 grand. And that's just because you have everyone from the trainee to the senior partner contributing, contributing, quote unquote, to an hour long call. And that costs you, you know, tens of thousands of pounds just to have that kickoff meeting because everyone's trying to monitor and to Joel's point, look like they're busy. Um, And then you get into something like having a junior associate fix footnotes. Well, that takes hours, hours and hours of work. Transcript review. Transcript review. Yeah, days, like, days of work, and that's the thing you're not even paid by the day. That's maybe a thing, like at least put a day or a flat fee for a day. No, it's by hours. So imagine if you spend, you know, we've all done that. It takes an all nighter, mm-hmm. or and, and so you're billing like what 18 hours to or more for that kind of work, uh, which is just the time that you've spent to do it because it's time consuming, absolutely. It, have you money, seen, or or am I completely insane? distinguishing hours depending on oh. the task like you 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 know distinguish uh, sort of straightforward tasks like a junior person's review of a transcript as opposed to junior person's you know first draft of uh, an mm-hmm. opening statement or something that is much more qualified quote unquote it's it's, it's always one person mm-hmm. costs x and it doesn't matter what they do it's still mm-hmm. going to cost X. Is that, mm-hmm. is that the standard formulation? No, it, it's not based on task, but and, and I think it would be very difficult to do that. However, that could be an interesting thing to anything that's related to, you know, uh, document review or uh, like uh, reading into a case or reviewing footnotes or proofreading maybe could be considered an admin task that would have a fixed rate of a hundred pounds an hour, for example, since it's not requiring that being said, you know, you have a junior associate look at a transcript and you think they're just listening to the audio and, and following along, but it actually requires someone with a yeah. bit of, of course, training. It's all qualified. To, you need to know the case and you, you need, need to know what know you're looking case. for. Yeah. And, and, that's whether it's you, and that's why you have different rates for different people, right? Because yeah. if you're a senior lawyer 
and you're reviewing the transcript, you will immediately know mm-hmm. what's wrong. And it will take you, for example, 15 minutes to read like 10 pages and find out what's going on. Whereas a, a junior, 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 it will take him hours, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why there's this key of, okay, you know, my rate is not the same as a trainee's and that senior partner's rate is not the same as mine uh, kind of thing ongoing as well. Uh, but that means also that law, law firms and law, the, you know, arbitration departments have to be very efficiently organized. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to have like from the outset and which you usually do, but query as to how efficient it is, right? Sometimes because everyone's reviewing the draft a million times, everybody has their comments and then comments on comments. And it's really in an ideal world, you should have, um, you know, a model of like an ironing thing happening, like the first draft done by um, junior people, then reviewed by this mid-level people, then senior people, then a partner, yada, yada, yada. But you know how that is. You know, if you have to produce something within a week or 24 hours, it's never like that. Everybody works at the same time. No. Mm. Let me switch uh, tack and ask you guys, because you're not always justifying to a client your own rates. Sometimes you're sort of, the client within quotation marks yourself with the arbitrators who are obviously typically either working on an hourly basis, getting paid on an hourly basis or the ad valorem system where U S parties don't really see what they bill as much because it's determined typically by an institution, Mm -hmm. depending on the size and the complexity of the dispute, there's like a a scale that the institution exercises some discretion and applying and paying the arbitrators. But in many ad hoc cases, for example, or exit cases, you you get to see at some point, depends a little bit on the rules, the breakdown of the time spent by the arbitrators. Do you have any thoughts on that as compared to what you do when you present your own bills to your clients, when you get like an arbitrator's breakdown, how how detailed they are or how detailed they're not and how it differs and what you prefer? Do, do you prefer an hourly rate for arbitrators or do you think it's nicer to have a more predictable big bag of money and you know they're going to end up being paid something in a scale in that bag regardless of how many hours they put in what do you prefer mm-hmm. as the, the client in this context I, we, we talked about this last episode in the advance on costs actually and how certain institutions have that ad valorem system and i think it is difficult um to digest that billable hour from an arbitrator or a tribunal or a secretary um, it's more difficult for the client to digest that when they see the hourly rates so high and also questioning how much time it takes them to do what they need to do. Um, I've, I've had a discussion just yesterday with the client saying, you know, why is it taking so long to write an award? And you have to explain to them what it what's included in that. And mm-hmm. whereas you just have it established with your advance on costs based on the amount of dispute and everyone can kind of achieve buy-in much quicker and it doesn't become this back tax that everyone just freaks out about and then feels that they have their hands tied behind their back because you get the bill along with the award and then you said okay well I guess we have to pay this so uh, I instinct instinctively I would say the ad valorem system is is easy is an easier sell to clients do you review the in an ad hoc or an hourly rate system, do you review the arbitrator's timesheet and see if it seems reasonable or not? Or is it just like, this is the cost of doing business. We trust the good judgment of these people we have appointed and there's no reason to 
look carefully at, you know, did they spend half an hour reading that or did they spend six hours on yeah. something we don't think they should have spent six hours on? In the few ad hoc cases that I've had, I've only received a one page document with a lump sum figure basically and the number of hours. So I haven't seen a timesheet. I don't know if you are used to submitting timesheets, Joel, in your practice, but the timesheets I've seen have been one pagers. So I, I, it's really like almost impossible. To it differs a lot. And I think it depends on the party's preferences and the party's input and also the institutional practice. In some yeah, cases, it, it really is, it really is like, a, like a, a law firm, you know, it's a, a item by item, almost down to the, the 15 minutes on a daily basis. Depends a little bit on the arbitrator's practice as well. Some are just like, you know, I spent 18 hours this last month, and that includes drafting a procedural order and uh, reviewing this submission and one call with my co-arbitrators. And right. that's it. It's not broken down into items. And I'm just mm-hmm. curious how much the end user uh, cares. I guess it's a matter of transparency in the more mm-hmm. theoretical sense as I, well. I would think that, that you know, we delegate that power also to the institution. So I would assume that the institution kind of have a look. Kind that's of. true kind of has a look and that, you know, of course that talks about institutional arbitration, not ad hoc, but, um, uh, and, and then also there's kind of, um, the arbitrators between themselves probably anchor them, you know, it would be mm-hmm. weird for a co-arbitrator, for example, to charge more than a president, I would mm-hmm. imagine. <laughs> <laughs> and that I'm sure that must have happened in the past. So they might've, you know, arranged that. And, uh, but, you know, to go back to your question, of course, there's the infamous, um, Nucos case where they did look at the number of hours spent by the secretary of a tribunal. And they're like, ha ha, that's like ground <laughs> for setting aside the award. Cause it's like almost a fourth arbitrator, you know, and he's the guy's senior and his partner and he spent that many hours. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't have to get up on the soapbox defending the role of tribunal secretaries, but I, I will do it a little <laughs> bit because I think there's an analogy there to what we just talked about within the law firm, because the tribunal secretary in this context is the junior associate or right. even the trainee. Right. Yeah. Just the, the mere fact it doesn't look good uh, on, on the face of it if a tribunal secretary has spent more hours than the, any of the tribunal members, really. But if they have, they've typically done so on the instruction of the tribunal and they've done so at a much lower hourly rate than what it would have cost the parties mm-hmm. if a tribunal member or the president typically did it instead. So there's, there's a, a financial effectiveness, uh, efficiency, really case to be made that tribunal secretaries at a lower rate, much like, you know, junior lawyers within firms sometimes spend more hours internally than the senior lawyers. And that's part of the, the, the business model, essentially. And clients have often rebuffed when they see those timesheets and see junior lawyers putting in much more hours than the senior lawyers, because the senior lawyers are the one that attracted the case in the yeah, first place. Right. But then, I mean, I guess it's easy to say, like, sure, we could have the senior lawyers do it instead, but that would cost you that would cost more. Exactly more. My response. <laughs> yeah. Like, you want them to and, do it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Same. We have the same discussions over and over again. I mean, uh, I have to say it's, it's, uh, it's very stressful. For um, for us, um, I, I'm taking my experience, but I'm talking. I'm sure Brian is the same for you. Um, it, it's it adds a level of stress, unnecessary stress, mm-hmm. I think, on lawyers having to, to justify only, yourself. Yeah, because <laughs> not only you have to bring in work, but you have to bring in work that's of course billable, right? But you also have to work bring in work that actually corresponds to the level of hours that you Mm -hmm. and your team are going to spend on it, right? And you were talking earlier about what clients want. What clients want are certainty. 
every time I speak to someone, they're like, how much is it going to cost us? Just tell us. I mean, what, how much do you think it's going to cost us approximately? And in our experience, we have a pretty good idea of how much it's going to cost approximately, right? So why are we still doing hourly basis is my question, because it just adds so much admin and stress to everyone. I mean, I'm, uh, it's probably not a corporate thing that I should say, um, but I, 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 I'm seeing it obviously in my personal capacity. There is not one lawyer that I have spoken to that hasn't told me that is has created so much anxiety um, mm-hmm. to them. And that's not necessary, honestly. And also one thing that we forget, as you mentioned, is there's a life of an arbitration lawyer is so much more than just working actively 100% on a case, you are doing so much more than that. You are training people. You are being trained. You are doing uh, admin stuff. You are speaking at conferences. Networking, networking, networking. Networking, (laughs) of course. But, you know, just even just the knowledge management part of it, you know, you have to be up to date by reading stuff and knowing what's going on. And uh, even if you take the whole networking part out of it, which is essential, it's so many hours. There are very difficult to quantify in terms of direct revenue, but obviously they're important. So you should be, uh, it's work, it's Mm -hmm. work, you know, it's not like you're not working. Um, So why are we still uh, obsessed with the uh, billable hour model is is the question. Why indeed. And you can like, you can, and just to sum this up, I mean, you can see with the product that's delivered, as, as Sadia said, you have the deliverable and you can see whether this is worth the money that's being spent or not. And no one, no one can squeak by with a poor draft and putting in hours that are much more than that. So I can say from my end, and I think this is considered the more like innovative side to the firm model that it, it is fading and it is dying and it just hasn't really justified itself in the way that it needs to be. However, on the other hand, people do need to, and bigger firms, they do need to keep track, regulate and uh, figure, you know, keep track of hundreds of people at the same time. And that is the only metric that they, that they have now. But I think it is an incentive for these big firms to kind of refocus and, and kind of keep up with the times. Yep. Absolutely. Let's see how things uh, evolve on that. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and then we'll have a ceremony and uh, and a burial ground of, of billables in the future. Imagine if we were billing our hours for the podcast. Yeah. We'd be millionaires by now. Billing, billing whom? Like who would pay for this? <laughs> Anyone? Anyone want to pay? <laughs> All right, guys. Well, Sadi, I think I hear a train conductor calling your name for, yes. the, for your train to Paris. So safe travels. Thank you. See Thank you around. Guys. I'll yeah. see you on Wednesday, Brian. I'll see you moderate that panel. We will maybe this is this will be published the day before, but I'll throw something in when we publish the podcast as well in case someone wants to join us. Thank you. All right, guys, take care. Bye. Bye.